when I was in high school, I was on the surf team, which to many of you might sound ridiculous. If you grew up outside of Southern California, that probably sounds just about absurd, probably some kind of fictitious like 90210 situation. <laughs> but it is true nonetheless. Every day after school, we would load up into a van and drive through Carpinteria past all these beautiful avocado orchards down to Rincon to surf. Tough life, huh? <laughs> because we went there every day, we knew most of the local folks. There was a, there was a woman who wore a sun hat. Who, she was in her 70s, and she would walk the beach with this pointed stick, and she would pick up trash with it uh, almost all the afternoon. Uh, there were a handful of, of pretty grumpy but dedicated surfers in their 20s and 30s who drove like white pickup trucks and worked construction jobs or waited tables so that they uh, had free schedules to be able to drop whatever they were doing to go surf <laughs> whenever the surf was good. Then there was a character called the Pacific Commander. <laughs> The Pacific Commander was a long-haired guy in his late 50s who looked like he'd lost a few brain cells in the 60s. <laughs> he drove this tiny, like, Datsun uh, Pacific uh, or, uh, beige pickup truck that had a plank of wood that kind of looked like a railroad tie for the bumper instead of, like, the normal metal number. <laughs> and he paddled out on equipment that looked barely, barely floatable. It, I remember he had this boogie board that was like somehow bent in half, which is impossible to do, but somehow he had one. He also had this 10-foot uh, uh, surfboard with no fins. Um, and uh, sometimes he just swam out into the ocean entirely clothed. <laughs> Shoes, everything. We called him the Pacific Commander because one day he paddled out about 25 yards past everyone else and yelled at the top of his lungs, I am the Pacific Commander! There is no Western frontier. <laughs> yeah, pretty good, huh? It, it was beyond weird. Uh, I don't know exactly what branch of military this guy claimed. <laughs> and I'm not sure exactly where the frontier was that had fallen. But I will say that the Pacific commander's rank did not positively affect his status in the lineup at Rincon. <laughs> his statement, repeated several times after that incident, confirmed what most of us suspected. This guy was mentally ill. Such was the soldier's reaction to Jesus. Here's a guy on death row, a guy about to be executed, a guy that just a few days before rode into town on a donkey with huge crowds greeting him saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They called him Hosanna, or more accurately in Aramaic or Hebrew, Hashiana, the one who saves, the rescuer, the liberator. He was supposed to be the one who would free his people and begin a just and verdant political state in line with God's justice. Now, a few days later, here he is being executed by 
the Romans like a common thief. If I came across a man on death row that people called the Messiah, I would probably think of him more like the Pacific commander than a prophetic liberator. Soldiers of an occupying nation, particularly the Roman Empire, are a bit different from a high school surf team. The soldiers didn't just laugh at Jesus coyly. They beat him. They mocked him. They wrote a sign over him and used his own identity to belittle him, much as we had done with the Pacific commander. The term king was ironic. The Messiah was supposed to be a king, a king with a royal heritage stretching all the way back to King David. This is the promise we hear in Jeremiah today in the Old Testament reading. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live safely. The inscription over Jesus was meant to shame him. This is the shame of never becoming who he was supposed to be. Many of us can relate to that. Perhaps we've had dreams of becoming great writers or maybe being great in our academic fields, being respected and being comfortable in our wealth. Uh, you know, we recently moved up from L.A. and we had a lot of friends who had the shame of never having made it, you know, never made it in the film industry. Uh, <laughs> whenever, when I think of that, I think of that movie, Pretty Woman. Do you guys remember Pretty Woman? Do you remember the, there's, there's, a, there's a little statement that, that it bookends the, the film and it's this little, there's a guy walking down the street and he says, what's your dream? Welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? Everyone... Everyone comes here. This is Hollywood. Some dreams come true, some don't. But keep on dreaming. This is Hollywood. There's always time to dream. Keep on dreaming. Keep on dreaming. It sounds great. I think we do need to hear that. I have a friend uh, from our old church, a friend of Nathan and I's, that, uh, that was an actor and a screenwriter. And he just started this, this podcast it's called the other F word, failure. He, this podcast is all about this kind of shame. A few weeks ago, we talked about Brene Brown and the power of vulnerability. We talked about how being vulnerable draws us into deeper connection by allowing us to share our authentic selves. We did not talk as much about what prevents us from being vulnerable. Shame. In the words of Brene Brown, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. That is, shame dissolves our very ability to dream. Two weeks ago, many of us had a broken dream. 
We've dreamed the dream that those who are most vulnerable among us, the poor, the disenfranchised, people of color, women, the undocumented, our LGBTQ sisters and brothers, that these folks and all people will be cared for, included, and loved. We dreamed what Jeremiah wrote, that God would send leaders to gather the remnant, to bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply shepherds to watch over them that they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed nor shall any be missing instead we have a shepherd more like those condemned in the beginning of the passage ones who scatter the flock who drive them out in fear and leave them unattended. And many are still shaken from the fear of that. The fear of that broken dream. The soldiers mocked Jesus because they thought the dream was unfinished. Unfulfilled. But they did not understand the dream of God. The vision of God. It's the vision that says, happy are the poor, the sick, the mournful. It is the vision of the stone the builders refused becoming the cornerstone, the house of prayer for all nations. The lion laying down with the lamb, it is the vision of a good shepherd, a shepherd who puts his life at risk for the sake of the sheep. As we talked about in the beginning of this service, this Sunday marks the end of the liturgical calendar. And it's interesting that we end with this mixed celebration, Christ the King. After 2,000 years of Christianity blurring with politics, it might be difficult to hear the peculiarity of this word, this idea, Christ the King, Jesus the President, Jesus the Carpenter, Jesus the poor religious teacher, Jesus the peasant who was killed with thieves, Unlike the Pacific commander, unlike so many would-be stars in Hollywood, Jesus was not self-aggrandizing. He was not a social climber or a name-dropper. Instead, he spent his time with the poor, the lost, the forgotten. These days, Christian teachers articulate this elevation of the marginalized as what Gustavo Gutierrez calls a theology of liberation, or Oscar Romero called the preferential option for the poor. More recently, we've expressed it as God's unique concern for the vulnerable. As new as those ideas may seem, they are not. Early Christian painters expressed this by de depicting Christ as a lamb. A lamb, a newborn sheep, wobbly, delicate. That's the king we worship today. The king who chose death for the sake of others rather than self-aggrandizing or celestial military might. By doing so, Jesus taught us something about the nature of this world, about how it is shaped what endures, and how each of us are made. This is the Christ born of the Logos from the Gospel of John. The Logos, the Greek word meaning the way, the word, the logic. This is the same word that when it's translated into Chinese, they use the Tao. 
the way. There's a Greek Platonic concept of the blueprint for all that is and was and is to come. The word that God spoke that created everything and continues to create everything. That word is what Jesus embodies. The word that articulates love through self-sacrifices. Jesus' reign, the love that flows through each and every one of us. Love for our families, love for our children, love for our friends, love of learning, love of beauty, love of life itself. This love motivates the best of what we do. It is that love that endures, that love that reigns. The love that never gives up. It never overlooks the, for, the forgotten, the lost. We see it in the passage from today. A man who is being killed beside Jesus, not an innocent criminal, mind you. At the last moment of his life, he turns to the love that shapes all things and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me where dreams come true. Not Hollywood, not Rincon, not even a place in the fluffy clouds. But the state of being where streams make glad the city of God. The state of being where the lion and the lamb lie down. Where we give in to the love that surrounds us always. The state of being where we finally listen to the voice. Saying, be still. Be still. And know that I am God. Amen.